and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Medea Ocher. I'm joined in the studio today by Boris Dreluk, who's editor-in-chief of LARB. And we're going to be speaking with Gary Steingart, whose latest novel is called Our Country Friends, and it's the latest pick for the LARB Book Club. Thanks, Boris, for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for letting me join you. Boris, what did you think of this book? I enjoyed it a great deal, um, and I was especially pleased to see his treatment of the lockdown and of the pandemic as a kind of new normal, which I believe it is. And that's what struck me also in our conversation with Gary, his presentation of COVID as just one of the many crises that we are bound to encounter in the next decade and beyond. Not a hopeful thought. Not a hopeful thought, but his uh, focus on the fundamental things, on love and friendship, on life continuing. As he mentioned, he has a character named after uh, the Decameron. Life continued in those times, too. I, I think there is some glint of hope in that way of viewing our current crisis. Let me ask you, would you want to spend the rest? Let's say we have another year of the pandemic left. Would you want to spend it with some friends on a compound in upstate New York? Upstate New York is better than where I spent it. <laughs> Where did you spend uh, it? No. Uh, I actually, I, I wouldn't trade. I wouldn't trade my apartment in Los Angeles for a compound in upstate New York. Uh, let me just uh, put it out there. But of course, I think we all felt the pangs of longing for for more connection, more friendship. So, uh, although these friends perhaps would not have been my first choice, spending lockdown with friends is better than spending it alone. Four words have never been said. All right, should we get to the conversation? Absolutely. Okay, let's do it. Greetings, LARP Book Club members and Radio Hour listeners. I am Boris Treluk, Editor-in-Chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books, and my discussion partner for this session is Medea Ocher, co-host of the LARP Radio Hour, and by sheer coincidence, a fellow Soviet emigre. This is in fact a very special ex-Soviet edition of the book club, as our guest of honor is the doyen of Russian-American letters, Gary Steingart, the author of the novels The Russian Debutante's Handbook, Absurdistan, Super Sad True Love Story, and Lake Success, as well as the memoir Little Failure, Steingart's sharp sense of humor, memorable characters, and up-to-the-minute responsiveness to developments in the culture have won him comparisons to Philip Roth and Saul Bellow, as well as a number of prizes and a wide, dedicated readership. His latest novel, Our Country Friends, is a poignant, affectionate, warmly funny tale of pandemic life set at a house on the hill in the Hudson Valley. More than one critic has called it Chekhovian, and Chekhov does make a well-timed appearance. But before we wade into cherry orchards and gooseberry shrubs, let me welcome Gary Steingart, who was kind enough to join our pod today. Hey, welcome, fellow Soviets. Привет. Привет. So, Gary, thank you so much for joining us. I just wanted to start by, can you tell us a little bit about how you greeted the pandemic? What were you doing when it first started? I remember it was March 6th or 7th, and the big panic broke out in the city in New York. And I was about 100 miles north trying to write this novel, this dystopian novel that was kind of not going too well. It was a comedy about NYU taking over Manhattan and building like a wall around it, you know, New York University. And then you know, they had their own police force, the Violet Helmets or something like that. It was very broad academic satire. And so I was 100 miles north and I remember I went to dinner at this restaurant I love in Kingston, New York, not far from where I am with my buddy, the great novelist Paul LaForge, who also lives up there. 
And Paul and I were having a beautiful dish of Arctic char, their most famous dish at this restaurant. And we looked at each other and we're like, is this the last meal we're going to have for a while? Because it seemed like that's where things were going. And then I think the restaurant like closed the next day or something. So it was, I remember taking a photo of myself in a bathroom, just me in a bathroom, because I thought this might be the last time that I'm going to be in a public bathroom. And I wanted to capture that beautiful moment. And that was it. And then my family, my wife and kid came up, left New York, school went completely online. And that's where I was for like a year. And it was interesting because I did a reading for my last book, Lake Success, up in the country in this beautiful church in Tivoli. And I said to the audience, who were all second homeowners or locals, I said, you know, I'm thinking of actually one day writing a book set up here. And this woman got up and said, very angry, said, you second homeowners, you got to live here full time to write a book about upstate. You can't just, you know, you can't just go back to Manhattan or Brooklyn and write about the exoticism of upstate. And as luck would have it, because I was stranded up there for at least a year, I earned my stripes and was able to now officially write about upstate. So that's what happened. And did you start working on the book in those very early days of the pandemic? Yeah. I mean, I've written dystopian fiction before. I have a book called Super Sad True Love Story, which is set in a kind of collapsing America. And this really felt like a collapsing America because it was happening on two levels. You know, there was this health crisis, people refusing to believe this is happening, and also a political crisis with a president who was telling us all to drink bleach or whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. So to me, it was this kind of great feeling of, oh, the dystopia is here. Obviously, it was tragic, too, because people were starting to die, and especially in places that I knew well, places where I kind of grew up, you know, parts of Queens, Elmhurst, Jackson Heights, all of that, and immigrants, fellow immigrants. So definitely it felt very personal, but at the same time, it felt like the dystopia I was writing about NYU taking over Manhattan felt kind of a little silly given the reality of what was happening on the ground. And that combined itself with this feeling I had that I was taking these long walks and I was feeling very lonely and I wanted to populate, I do have one guest house, the landowner in our country friend, Sasha Sindorovsky, has four or five little sort of bungalows. And as a kid, I went to a Russian bungalow colony across the river in Ellenville, New York. And it was all these wonderful Russian kids. And I had really fond memories of that. I was still learning how to speak English and stuff like that. So yeah, it really meant a lot to me to try to, <laughs> to bring all my friends from the city up to visit me in my one little guest house. But for the novel, I expanded my remit and populated it with four more bungalows and then decided to populate it with mixtures of all the friends I've known over the years, you know. So all these characters are mashups of people I know, which I think is how people really write fiction. Unless you have an incredible imagination, it's usually about stuff, you know, even if you're writing. I teach at Columbia. I had this student who was writing about these gay dragons on a different planet, and it was clearly his dad and mom and his friends, and he just made them gay dragons. And, you know, I'm like, whatever works, you know. Whatever helps you out is good. But for me, and this is probably the least satirical book I've ever written, right? So it was easy to write in that sense because, you know, I wrote the whole thing in six, seven months. And also I wasn't drinking a lot because there were fewer social outings. Manhattan is the great, or Brooklyn, whatever, it's the great killer of literature because you're always out with fellow writers. Everyone's always depressed and drinking too much. And being upstate really helped because I would wake up and still be in good shape and could write double what I usually write. So, Well, that makes a lot of sense. Um, And I want to go back to something you said about your being drawn to dystopias or having written dystopias before. What strikes me about the book is despite the dystopian atmosphere, First of all, it is one of the first pandemic novels. It's a very good novel about the pandemic that doesn't treat it as 
an out-and-out catastrophe, although, of course, catastrophe is in the air. And I'm wondering, this is a vague, amorphous, a very broad question, do with it what you will. I'm wondering whether you feel something about the Soviet experience that you have under your belt determined the tone of this novel that treated the pandemic as kind of the disruptions of COVID as part of the unfolding of human existence rather than a huge eruption from outer space. I think that's a great point. I mean, absolutely, you know, being ex-Soviet or ex-Russian or still Russian, I don't even know what the hell you want to call it, but you know, it's a country that sort of staggers from one crisis to another. There's never a good day. There's never a good period of history. You know, it was the worst version of feudalism and serfdom. And then there was this awful, you know, supposedly socialist system, but really an authoritarian system. And then the worst turbo capitalism and the worst attempt at whatever the hell this weird journey into neoliberalism is supposed to be for modern day Russia. It just always sucks. And but at the same time, life goes on, right? And families go on and people meet at the kitchen table and hash things out. And all that is always was reflected in the golden era of Russian literature, 19th century, the second half of the 19th century. All that literature, I think, reflected that. You know, so you have serfdom or the abolition of serfdom in novels like Fathers and Sons, but at the same time, it's about fathers and sons. And that's what all of these books are about. You know, Anna Karenina is about family and love and what romantic love means. and But at the same time, all these huge events are happening off screen. War and Peace is probably the biggest. I mean, there, the background invades more than in other books, perhaps. I mean, it is about the Napoleonic conquest. But I don't know. Overall, I would say to me, what's interesting is that now, I mean, a lot of people are like, oh my God, I can't believe you're writing about the pandemic too soon. And I don't want to read about that. But I had a feeling this pandemic wasn't just going to go away, that it would last years, which it is. And I think, honestly, we're now entering a kind of Russian period for this country where we're going to stagger from one crisis to another. And there's going to be more and more authoritarian kind of rule. And there's not going to be a way not to write about that. I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to write about, you're writing the great Portland novel or the great Seattle novel. Well, those places were scorched almost to death in the last year. How do you write about California without forest fires or increasingly places like New York with hurricanes and global warming, I mean, in the sea level rise. And those are just the ecological factors. Then you have stuff like these pandemics, and then you have the political disaster that's only going to increase and by 2024 may reach truly catastrophic levels. So the key is, I think, to write about all of these things, keeping in mind that you still want to write about what may be love, maybe family, and in this case, friendship which is the ultimate sort of Jacobian thing. A bunch of people in their 40s gather around in the countryside and have regrets, many, yes. many regrets. You know, that's, that's sort of, I mean, that's Chekhov. If you have to boil them down, right? That's, a, that's pretty much it. Oh God, why did I become a school teacher in this crappy town? Or uh, why do I only have 40 hectares of land instead of 80 and I can't grow my gooseberries? What the hell, you know, stuff only, like that. Only vanishing horizons, as you said. Vanishing horizons, exactly. So I think that to me is the important part of this book, as I myself will be 50 next year, all of these things are important to me and to my cohort of friends. So, you know, as I, as I pitched it to my editor in a very Hollywood-like fashion, I was like, it's Chekhov meets the big chill. I've done enough work in LA that I <laughs> say that kind of stuff with a straight face now, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was it. And part of this book, I mean, now that we're talking about friendship and Russianness, is that the immigrants in this book are not just the Russian couple at the center, but the two Korean friends who join them and the Indian American friend who also joins them. Why populate the book with such a multi-culti group of immigrants? 
I actually grew up like that. I went to this horrifying parochial yeshiva type school where being a Russian was the worst thing imaginable. I mean, oh my God, the hazing was out of control. My parents were like, oh, you'll be surrounded by Jews. And I was like, great. But these Jews are constantly saying <laughs> that. But, you know, no, no, they love you. It's their way of saying, you know, become more kosher with every punch. You know, so that was my first experience. But then I went to this place, Stuyvesant High School, which is completely multicultural and heavily surrounding, you know, people like in the book. So Korean, Indian, Russian, Chinese, all of that stuff was very much the lay of the land. And I think a lot of my friends to this day, most of my best friends are from those parts of the world. It's interesting. There was actually a study that I think I quoted in the book, and I was talking about it with a podcast called Time to Say Goodbye, a great podcast that's two Korean Americans and one Taiwanese American, I believe. And then we were talking about in similar terms because they also read that study or one of them read the study. So it was Koreans, Indian, post-Soviets and West African immigrants were forming friendship groups. Pretty interesting, right? I think the West Africans came just a little too late for me. I think that was a later development because I came in the late 70s, but there was more of a wave of them later on. But for sure, after 1965, a lot of Asian Americans when the immigration, these horribly racist immigration policies were somewhat liberalized and there was a bunch of people and we were all in this math and science nerd school and, you know, people like, oh, Russian, you must know math and chess and all that. And I suck at all of those things. But, you know, that was the sort of, we were all tarred with the same brush as these kind of idiot savants when it came to math or whatever. And that's the friendship group that's at the center of this, although there are two interlopers who are not Asian or Russian in the character of the actor, who's this very sort of celebrity type of person. And D. Cameron, ha ha, like the, the Cameron, get it? Oh my God. The joke's oh, my God. <laughs> Boris just got it. You just got it? Oh, wow. <laughs> no. Oh, no, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. D. Cameron, ha ha ha, who is a kind of firebrand essayist who writes, she's of the left, but she flirts with the far right. She does all this crazy stuff. So yeah, so there's all the stuff about class and race and gender and all of that happened in the space of the book. And also the murder of George Floyd happens in the book. So everyone has the chance to react to that. And all of these characters are, as we say in academia, constantly interrogating their privilege because they are, most of them, with the exception of one character, fairly well off or close to well off from middle to very, very upper. And one character is practically a billionaire after she invents an app that's very successful. Yeah. And that brings up another question I had. You mentioned that it really is impossible to write about anything, including the fundamental things, which should be our focus, love, friendship, and the rest of it, without including, without being invaded by the reality of the moment, global warming and the political developments, but also technology. And I really love the way you depict technology in your books. And I think it's clever and fresh and very true to my own experience of it, which is relatively limited. Could you talk a little bit about new media, social media, how you incorporate that? Is it easy to write about for you? And do you interact with it personally? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So yeah, before this, I guess my most read book was Super Sad True Love Story, which was all about the future. And but most of the book came true already, like even tiny things from the book. I was just in The Guardian because they were writing about how Super Sad Goldsmith College, which is sort of their school of art and design, kind of like their uh, Cooper Union or something was... In my book, it gets bought by HSBC, the bank, and turns into HSBC Goldsmith. But in reality, it's being bought by NatWest and Lloyds of London or something. So, you know, and they're also doing exactly the same thing with the book. So most of that book came true. And it was very, I didn't know anything about technology at that point. It was more like MySpace was the big thing at that point. But I had a 
intern from teaching at Hunter at that point, Hunter College in New York. And he really helped me with social media. And the moment I started getting on social media, I was like, oh my God, this is this awful, awful stuff. And I had a feeling that it was just going to be absolutely terrible for humanity. That was my initial, I mean, sort of the premise of Super Century Love Story. But I'm always on social media too. Like I hate it with a huge passion, but I'm always on, you know, Twitter, Instagram, just wasting time. But also, I guess it is helpful because I think it's impossible not, if we're going to write about climate change, we also have to write about social media, which has done so much to retard the process of democratization of, you know, it's the opposite of an educational tool. It's a misinformational tool, if that's a word. And so for me, that's very interesting. And in this book, the technology is called True Emotions, and it's this app which makes people fall in love with each other after they take a photograph of themselves. And two characters in the book, which happens very quickly, it's not much of a spoiler, but the actor falls in love with D. It doesn't work for everyone, this thing. And the actor spends the whole book pining after her and trying to not fall in love with her and try to fall out of love with her. And then he goes out with her and they have a relationship and all this stuff. But the feeling I had is that these algorithms change people's lives to such an extent that it's possible that even without this app, that people fall in love with one another based on superfluous things. You know, an algorithm says, you know, you're going to like this person. And then, you know, they meet the vitals, the biological or whatever vitals that people look for. And then they fall in love and then awful things happen because no relationship should be based off of social media. So that was why I put in even this book, which has the pandemic as its background, is also a book about technology, which almost every one of my books has been since year 2005 or six. And I think you also very successfully depict what can happen to a writer on Twitter when a piece is interpreted or selectively read in a particular way. Yeah, Um, one character gets canceled, and I guess different readers may think that the cancellation is fair or unfair, depends on the reader, but I thought it would be fun. As I said, Dee dabbles in the far right and it bites her in the ass, even though she's really not that kind of... Those really aren't her ideologies, but she really needs more retweets and stuff, and she she goes a little too far. And that was the most convincing part, is the motivation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, 90% of the people I know on Twitter, and including myself, we all say the same exact thing. You know, maybe one person is a little funnier, but we all have exactly the same political views and we say the same thing. And it's like, it's the most boring thing imaginable. And yet everyone has to say it in a new, clever and ironic way. And then you get more hits and likes and I don't know, it's just terrible. Well, if you tweeted that, I'd like it. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and follow me on Twitter, everyone, at Steinger. Instagram, too. Just, you know, please. This is all I have now. Our radio listeners, <laughs> you should see his face. Please. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Gary Steingart, author of Our Country Friends. We will return to that conversation in just a moment. But first, we have this week's book recommendation. We have James Hanaham on the line with us today. His newest book is called Pilot Imposter, and James is here to give us, I think, a movie recommendation. James, what movie are you going to recommend? It's a documentary called Simple as Water. It's on HBO Max. I I was watching just random television the other day, and I came across this. It's a a documentary about Syrian refugees and people living in Syria who are fleeing or trying to flee uh, the civil war. And it seems very simple. In fact, I thought it was a narrative film that had, you know, had a script and everything because, you know, the people are so beautiful. (laughs) <laughs> they just they looked like they had some kind of makeup on or something. I mean, I love a heartbreaking documentary 
And this is like a view into people's lives that, you know, is extremely urgent and difficult and full of moments that are just absolutely heartbreaking. But then also, you know, there's a lot of hope involved as well. And it's really incredibly made when you think about how many people they had to follow in how many different countries that may not have been where it was probably not very easy to get access. Anyway, I just thought it was beautiful and devastating. It sounds really good. Can you tell us the title of the movie again? Simple as Water. We have been speaking with James Hanahan. His newest book is called Pilot Imposter. Thank you, James. Thank you. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Gary Steingart, author of Our Country Friends. Let's talk a little bit about the, this, the actor character because he's a funny addition to this group. He does, doesn't quite fit in. He's there because he has a potential working relationship with the writer that's at the yeah. center of the story. Not a particularly productive relationship, but that is maybe, maybe a kind way of saying it. But he does end up kind of being a catalyst for a lot of, of what happens in the book. And I was curious about why, and he also never gets a name. Very end, it's a very prosaic name at the very end of the book. But it's very forgettable, yeah. But throughout the book, he's known as the actor. The actor, yeah. yeah. And and it's 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 a funny inclusion because he's a he's a the name would suggest he's a type, but he does have a lot of sort of willed action, <laughs> willed and unwilled. And um, so I'm curious about how how you came to him and or where he came from. Well, I do a lot of work with uh, you know with TV stuff, and uh, everything I write is always adapted. Never quite gets made but it's always adapted. And I've worked with a lot of very, uh, you know, very big names uh, who have wanted to either direct or play a role in one of these things. So I know a lot about how actors at the very highest level think, you know, and I sort of know what it's like to walk down the street with one of these people. And, you know, everyone in the street, you know, the street is frozen. Um, I once walked into a In-N-Out burger, which is my favorite burger uh, chain, uh, I walked into an In-N-Out with, I won't mention who it is, but, you know, one of these very beyond bold-faced names. And the whole, you know, every, everything just stopped. <laughs> Everyone was like tourists. It was, in the, it was in Westwood. Everything just stopped. And we were just pitching to Showtime, I guess. Everything stopped. And um, I think we got like free burgers, free everything. It was just this, I, you could see that, you know, we don't have royalty. We don't have aristocracy officially. We have this weird meritocracy. I mean, in New York, you know, I, I know because many billionaires, but they're, you know, they're not recognized. But for this is our aristocracy, people who have, you know, made a couple of good movies or whatever. And and uh, obviously L.A. is kind of an epicenter of New York in some ways, too. But it's just it's um, and I thought it's a little it's also I mean, I don't want to feel, you know, play a violin for these people, but it's also kind of annoying to be that to be treated like that all the time and to have to. Because many of them, I mean, you know, it's, it's funny because they reach out to me, they've read the, one of my books and they're like, they think of themselves as artists too. And I guess there's a, there's, a, there's I mean, that, that, that's true to some extent, but, but I think they want some of the um, artistry to be, you know, they want to manage the process of creating something with a quote unquote artist who's not a celebrity in that sense anyway, and who's not, you know, just... You know, I have my readership, but they're all kind of small furry people like myself, and they're not. You know, you have to go to like you know 
specialized orcs convention to meet fellow lovers of literature. But, you know, you walk with one of these people and, you know, the world stops, like I said. So um, so it's interesting for them. You know, I'm not saying they're like intellectually slumming or something or, or maybe I'm intellectually slumming or whatever. But it's a, it's always an interesting kind of thing when you try to put a project together. And what's funny is that like Sasha, I'm always like, let's make this funny. Let's make it more commercial. And it's usually the actor, whoever that actor is, who's just like, Oh no 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 no! We need to make it more arts, you know, and 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 then you know it goes to the network, and the actress like, uh, this is very, you know, <laughs> we bought a funny book, and it's no longer that funny, you know. The script is kind of serious, and I'm like, I know, I'm with you, you know. <laughs> so, but it's it's very interesting some of the relationships that many, and and I'm not the only um, writer I know who works, you know, with, with TV or, or film, and it's. I, you know, often it's it's stuff like that where it's, you know the person you're working with wants more or whatever. Yeah. And and of course for them it's a prestige <laughs> project. It's a it's a prestige opportunity um, to to work with. Yeah, with they want to get prestige. I want to lose prestige. You know? Exactly. Exactly. Well, a stupid thing to be on the air. I mean, give me less prestige. Take away any prestige I have is good. You know. I, I think you've handled that pretty well during this hour. Yeah. Good. Good. Take away <laughs> prestige hour. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I have a, a question that's a, a slightly Chekhovian to raise the prestige uh, a little oh, bit. Chekhov, Chekhov is famous for his zero endings, non-endings. Yeah. Uh, the stories uh, kind of peter out and the characters live yeah. on. Uh, yeah. What what makes them linger is precisely what you, what you say, that vanishing horizon. Well, they go past that horizon and we are left here wondering right. what became of them. Did they make that big uh, step that they claimed they were going to make? Do you have a vision of your characters beyond the end of this book? Do you feel that you've kind of left it in that in that moment or or, or not? Yeah, I mean, that is, it's a great description of, of what Chekhov does. And it also a good description of how I think of literary fiction. There is some joke about, you know, what's there between literary and commercial fiction? In literary fiction, two characters set out to find something, they don't find it. In commercial fiction, they set out to find something and they find it, you know, and then, and then you can make a really nice uh, movie off of that. Um, yeah. I, I mean, this ending does have a very, you know, I don't want to give it away, but there, something big does happen, which Chekhov wouldn't probably liked. You know, he, he would have said, uh, no, that's, that's not how you roll, my Russian friend. Um, yeah, but here definitely there's a very stark ending for one of the characters. But the rest, yes, the rest go on very Chekhovingly. Because the idea, I think, is that it's almost the opposite of kind of the American idea. And this, this, this I've talked about in another article I recently wrote about a childhood operation that went terribly wrong in my life and which has recently reared its ugly head, where I have a quote about how, you know, Americans think they can outrun the past, but you really can't, you know, the, that's just a very American idea. And that is a very, the difference between maybe Chekhov and, and, or Russian writers and, and other writers is that nothing ever gets... You never outrun anything. It, it, it just continues over and over, the same thing over and over. And yet, and yet the, the greatest American writers, of course, uh, Fitzgerald and Faulkner, were quite aware of that. You know, the past isn't over. It isn't even past. Uh, past. And, yeah. and the greatest, I think, cultural artifact of about 15, 20 years, which was The Sopranos, to me, you know, was very interesting in that with that very ambiguous ending. That, yes. That sort of, uh, you know a little bit from Chekhov, where, you know, is, the, is, is, is Tony dead or not? Is this just going to continue the same thing over and over, you know? And, and I think uh, Chekhov would have liked that ending very much, too. So, yes, absolutely. You know. Brings up a question for me that I had about what you think makes a community. I know it's a, that's a big question, but 
in this book, part of what is communal for these characters is their past, right? And and much of much of what they end up kind of doing in their time together is figuring out how these pieces fit, how they fit together, how their future might make sense in terms of their past, how they have to re-understand it. But there's a broader community that they're also a part of that sort of sneaks in, sometimes breaks in um, violently and otherwise. And so I'm curious, like what, for this book and maybe in general, what do you think is, makes for a community? Yeah, it's interesting. It's a very good point. Uh, you know, so one of the things that made the community of myself and my friends that I mentioned before, this sort of very hybrid, uh, you know, uh, Russian, Indian, Korean type of thing was that we all had parents who had a lot of difficulty adjusting to this country and in some ways didn't have the bandwidth to, or the right advice to help us out when we needed, when, you know, as 20 somethings, when we were, or or even later when we were confronting the realities of adulthood. And I think we turned to each other and that sort of is the the basis for the character, for the friendships in this book as well. We turned to each other. It was was funny, like, you know, um, all of us filled in the, some of the roles that, that our parents couldn't do. So as the writer, I like wrote everyone's cover letters and CVs when they were applying for jobs. Uh, my friend helped me dress better because she was kind of like a graphic artist and stuff. You know, everyone had like a little something to give. And that really, really did feel like a community and almost like a family in some ways, you know. I think one of the difficulties, the pandemic brought this out, but other, but I think social media also does is that those are very false communities, you know, Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever it is. And that for communities to really function, you do need smaller physical communities, you know. Uh, upstate, I live in a village, but it doesn't feel very neighborly or very villagey to, to, to some extent, you know. People are on their social media as, as right-wingers or, or something else, you know, and that's that's where they draw their identity from more. And a lot of the communities around this, this year something wonderful happened. We finally got a... Um, we used to have a, a kind of uh, newspaper for, you know, like a weekly newspaper for our village and it died or rather it was bought out by this company and then the company killed it. You know, the usual stuff that happens to publications. And uh, and this year it came back. But that's a real the death of local journalism, I think, the, the fact that you can't get a newspaper that objectively gives you information about uh, where you live. Stuff like that is, I think, really hurts people's feelings of community then you know the neighborhood bar right where people meet even you know i think covid did a number on that obviously although the strange thing is i think people were more desperate for friendship and even love you know some of my friends who haven't been in a relationship for years started going out started dating someone for the first time so love also plays a role in our country friends as well you know very much so yeah people began to really hunger for physical uh, affection or, or just any kind of connection. So all of this stuff, I mean, this is, you know, people say, oh, you can't write about the pandemic, but it's, this is a huge event. You know, this isn't a one-year event. This is not even a two-year event. This is a gigantic, gigantic event that may be with us for a long time and that may completely redefine us. And that it will be, I think, the prelude, the amuse-bouche, if you will, to many other horrific and also life-changing events. So don't don't look away. You know, you gotta you gotta deal with it as it is. That's an excellent point. And uh, maybe if we can turn a slightly practical uh, on that pivot, mm-hmm. um, where do we look? Um, you know, uh, one uh, recent film tells us to look up. <laughs> uh, where do we find? Um, where do you find? How do you orient yourself in this uh, climate as 
an author, but also just as a human being navigating the new reality. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, yesterday I went out with my friend. We'd made plans to go out a long time ago. I didn't want to go into this bar, which was filled with NYU disease carriers. Sorry, this sounds like I'm really anti-NYU. I love all you NYU grads out there. You are my favorite. You're better than the new school even. Sorry, I love you new school people too. You are far better than City College. No, I'm kidding about that. City College, where I'm a graduate from, the best, the best. But we did it. We sat there in this completely freezing weather with this very inadequate heat lamp. Neither of us are fans of sports, but it was a sports bar with, you know, you're sitting outside and there's this screen. It's 18 degrees. The screen is broadcasting sports that we hate or don't have any interest in. We're eating these chicken wings that are not great. Uh, They were reheated. We're drinking a very overpriced hot toddy to keep ourselves warm. Not great bourbon. I don't know. They said bullet, but I'm not sure it was bullet. Um, All these terrible things are happening, but we're going to do it because our friendship matters. We're discussing literature. He's also a writer. It's like, and we're thinking, this is kind of fun. You know, we've gone to all this trouble to do it, uh, but the connection is there. We live in this very boring part of Manhattan and everyone sucks. We're the only non-investment bankers out there. Love you investment bankers who are listening. Great people. Thank you for buying the hard cover of the book because you can afford it. Um, but, you know, it, it was that's the kind of stuff. People going to, to, to great lengths to, to keep up connections. My friends who I, haven't, who I don't speak to so often because they live in Berlin or LA or something, we were on the phone all the time. You know, we were conference calling. We were remembering things that we'd completely forgotten, some of which had gone into the book. Like my friend and I back in the day, we used to watch The Simpsons when we were like teenagers and talk to each other on the, on the landline. And, you know, be like, oh, my God, I can't believe, you know, Mr. Burns just did that. It was like the sweetest, cutest thing. Um, like, I guess, live tweeting, except it wasn't tweeting. It was an actual princess phone or whatever she had, you know. And I think it's called talking. Talking. Yeah, that's oh, yeah. Or, you know, that we call it uh, verbaling because nobody <laughs> more people were verbaling at each other. And that's what that felt like. It was just really beautiful in a way. So. That's how I think about, you know, trying to recreate community because what it requires is physical presence. I just found out, I teach at Columbia in the spring and I just found out that the first at least two classes are going to be on Zoom and it just kills me. It just, you know, first of all, people are paying a fortune to do that school, but like, oh, it's just awful that, because it's just, it's nothing like the same thing. It's Mm -hmm. nice that, you know, now we get to see each other while we do this interview for, you know. So I'm, I'm, I'm not against all technology. I'm not just the Luddite who says, you know, the hell with it. But that physical connection is so important if we're going to survive, I think, as a democracy. The idea of people getting together, you know, in small groups is just, is just very important. Yeah. And uh, a lot of the animosity that we perceive in online communications, it's so much easier to, to yell at someone uh, <laughs> whose, whose face is flat on the screen or doesn't even exist. Uh, um, so, and it's so easy to misinterpret something. Like, I, I wrote this tweet a funny tweet about Bob Dylan winning, winning the Nobel Prize. And next thing I, but I didn't, you know, I was fine with him winning it. You know, it's just, I wanted, you know, I had something funny to say about it. And the next thing I know, Stephen King is attacking me in, in articles for Rolling Stone about, uh, you know, I'm just angry. I didn't win the Nobel Prize. Like I thought I was up for the Nobel Prize. Right. Uh, and that's why I'm angry that, that Bob Dylan won it when I, I was pretty happy he won it. I love Bob Dylan. Anyway, stuff like that. And it's like, God, what a, what a waste of, time. I mean, doesn't Stephen King have better things to do? Mm -hmm. Anyway, but that's sort of the the way we've evolved as a species, I think, into this rancorous and ridiculous kind of thing. The emotions in this book, 
of which there are very many, a lot of them are dealt with with in, in humorous ways, with humor, often sort of in a, in a straightforward capacity. And I wonder now that we're sort of talking about community and building something and, and, and sort of talking in this sincere kind of way, what do you think are some of the limitations in terms of what humor can do? Well, or do you think there are any? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things going on, right? So one thing that's sort of coursing through discussion in, in various media is the idea of, you know, humor in terms of punching down. And obviously the, you know, the controversy with Dave Chappelle has come up a lot. So this year I'm teaching a yeah. course of humor at Columbia, writing humorously. And that's a question I want to ask, you know, and I don't even know what my answer is because, you know, punching down, I want to make sure that we don't, you know, there's, there's a lot of categories that could fall into. I want to be careful, but I want to think about that some more, you know, um, what that means. And, how, and, and the idea is that, that a lot of punching down is very ineffective. It doesn't really move the discussion anywhere. It can be cruel, you know, so I'm interested in all of that stuff. As a humorist, I'm, I'm very interested in that part. The other thing is that I think that humor that just is there for its own sake doesn't quite do the trick, you know, so I, I want humor to convey, you know, it, it's my method of conveying the tragedy that's happening underneath, right? So, uh, which I think is a very Jewish approach to humor because it's it's sort of, it's a maybe it's a defense mechanism that you want to make fun of yourself before anyone else does. But throughout, by in, in using that kind of humor, you're also um, moving the, the you're, you're also telling the reader something that is not funny. And in some ways you're buying yourself credit to do that because you are entertaining the reader and the reader is along for the ride and thinks this is going to be just a laugh fest. But then by the end, or not by the end, you know, I mean, sometimes I think it's, you know, joke, joke, not joke, not joke, not joke, joke. You know, there's like kind of rhythm, rhythm to it. Yeah, there's a rhythm to it. And and in some of the books that we'll be looking at in uh, in this class, uh, books like um, well, we, we mentioned Roth earlier. Uh, I think Portnoy's complaint is still very funny in the sense that it's a, uh, it has a kind of performative quality that I think students love. But also uh, more contemporary books like uh, uh, Andrew Sean Greer's Less, you know, uh, which is a wonderful, wonderful book, uh, where you know the the narrator kind of is a is the the butt of the joke, but at the same time, it has a lot to say about what it means like, to, you know, for a, a gay man growing up in the late 20th century and in the 21st century. And there's just, a, you know, it's, it's kind of eye-opening too and, and, and sad in its, own, in its own right. Well, that's excellent, Gary. Thank you very, very much for giving us your time and, and uh, a lot to ponder. Gary, thank you very much for joining us and thank you all uh, listening. Uh, thank you, book club members, for signing up. Uh, Gary's new book is Our Country Friends and uh, it's published by Random House. Thank you so much. It was wonderful to meet you on the, on the uh, Zoom. <laughs> Take care. We've been speaking with Gary Steingart, author of Our Country Friends. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Mm-hmm.